Well, I would invite you, if you're so inclined, to turn in God's Word to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, there are a lot of them in the seats in front of you. And in we've got two different volumes uh, throughout the auditorium and the fellowship hall. It's either going to be page 917 or page 976. Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to be looking especially at verses 8 through 10. Uh, as I move my way through things, I'm going to be uh, referencing some other passages and some other parts of chapter 2 as well. But in just a moment, I'll read verse Verses 8 through 10. And as we know, Scripture has so much to say about the fact of Jesus's, Jesus's birth. And God has been explicit and full and complete in prophetic anticipation of the birth of Christ. And then, of course, his arrival, as we heard of from Luke chapter 2 and the other gospels tell us different aspects of things related to Christ's birth. Uh, but God has been emphatic with this and to help us understand that the coming of Christ was not plan B in God's design. It has always been plan A from before the foundation of the world before he created anything. But as we recognize and hear much and understand about the fact of Christ's birth, this morning the passage I want to look at really deals with the fruit of Christ's birth, what he accomplished because of his life and his death and his resurrection, what it means for those who believe on Christ, uh, and what it means to savor not only the gift, but the giver. And that's our focus as we look at verses 8 through 10 in Ephesians chapter 2. So let me read our text, and then I'll lead us in prayer, and we'll move into things and see what the Lord has for us. So verse 8 of Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this is the word of God. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray now that you would open our eyes to behold the wonderful things that you have revealed, even in this particular part of your word. We pray that you would help us to see and to savor the gift that you have given in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might see and savor your triune glory all the more, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Open to us the unsearchable riches of Christ, uh, that in seeing we might believe and be changed. We thank you for this time in Christ's name, amen and amen. Well, I would guess that almost all of you have opened a gift recently, whether it was this morning, whether it was last night, whether it was during the week, or even if it was just sometime in your life, you have no doubt opened a gift. Uh, one of the things that goes on in our home that my dear wife has done for a number of years now is at the very beginning of December, she puts together little one-a-day gifts for everybody. It's changed a little bit as some of the, as the kids are out of the home and dynamics change as they become adults, but I still get one-a-days, and uh, it's a great blessing, and, and just fun little things, you know, maybe some breath mints because she knows I need them or uh, various things, but as much as I enjoy these things each day, I'm even more thrilled that that my wife has an interest to do such things. And so I enjoy the gift, but I love the giver. 
And in a far greater way, God wants us to see and appreciate and enjoy the myriads of gifts that he gives, but ultimately the gift that he's given in the Lord Jesus Christ to know and enjoy him, that we might worship him and adore him and the Father and the Holy Spirit as well all the more. And so even as we enjoy all kinds of temporal gifts that God has given, he wants us to know the spiritual blessings that he's given his children in Christ. And so we're going to open up this gift of a passage, if you will, verses 8 through 10, and just look into it a little bit for some of the time that we have. And I just want to make four observations about the gift that God has given in Jesus Christ, this life-giving gift. And so four observations to just think together a bit about concerning this gift and all that God has given in Jesus The first observation is this. God's gift in Jesus is indispensable. It is indispensable, which is to say it is essential. It is needed. Now, the context of understanding this gift, and certainly even as we saw in verse 8, we're we're, we're told that all that God has given, it is the gift of God. But the context of this gift is our need of this gift. And to understand this context, we go back to verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2 and slip up on the page there and look at what the Apostle Paul says concerning our condition outside of receiving this gift, outside of faith in Christ. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This was your manner of life. He says, Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is a comprehensive, universal description of all of humanity, dead in trespasses and sins outside of Christ. And through the inspiration of God, the Apostle Paul gets very descriptive about the nature of this spiritual deadness. And we're not going to take time to unpack all that he says there in verses 1 to 3, but we understand that he is speaking of a separation and an alienation from, from God that is so complete, so full, so radical that it can only be described as spiritual deadness. And to be spiritually dead means there is absolutely nothing within any of us because of sin and its power, its enslaving power in our lives. There's nothing in us that enables us to respond to God on our own. In the exact same way, when a human being dies, they are are dead. And we understand the, the tragedy and the devastation of that. So Paul uses this descriptive and powerful language to help us understand the nature of sin and the nature of our condition outside of Christ. And that's why the gift of God of Christ and in Christ is absolutely indispensable because apart from God giving this gift, there would be no hope 
for anyone. Every single one of us in our sin, we are helpless and we are hopeless. We cannot, uh, we cannot free ourselves from the power of sin. We can't free ourselves from the penalty of sin, God's wrath and judgment because of our sin. We are dead. And so this gift is needed. This gift is essential. This gift is indispensable. You know, if you think about it, most, if not all, of the earthly gifts that we receive from other people, we can live without them. They're nice. They're wonderful. They're great. We enjoy gifts. I love breath mints and socks and other goodies that I get during the month of December from my dear wife. But at the end of the day, I can live without them. But with God's gift, you cannot live eternally without Jesus Christ. You will suffer God's wrath eternally apart from receiving the gift that he gives in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is the first reality, the first aspect of the nature of God's gift in Christ and of Christ, that he is indispensable. He is indispensable. Well, this leads to a second observation, and that is that God's gift in Jesus is immeasurable. It is immeasurable. Now, catch this in our text, and well, we're not getting to verse 8 just yet. I'm giving a little more context, but look at verse 4. Following all that, that Paul has said in verses 1 to 3 regarding our helpless, hopeless, dead condition, he begins verse 4 and he says, but God, but God. And it has been observed by many. Those are perhaps the two most precious words in Scripture. And in many ways, those two words summarize the totality of Scripture. Though we have sinned, though we are fallen, though we are spiritually dead, but God, but God, what we could not do for ourselves, He has fully immeasurably done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so listen to what Paul goes on to say and just catch the overflowing superlatives, the the unbridled way that Paul speaks about this. You get the sense that he's just beside himself. He's blubbering, if you will, in a spiritual way as he reflects upon the immeasurable wonders and riches. So it says, verse 4, and I'm going to read through verse 7, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Again, you, you see Paul, and, and this is ultimately God speaking through Paul, is just beside himself in wanting to declare and display the immeasurable riches of all that God has given in Jesus Christ. Now, if you want to get a, a fuller picture of the nature of those riches, read Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3. Because Paul spends all of that time reflecting upon the nature of these riches and the scope and the magnitude of the blessings that God has given in Christ. 
which is in contrast to the curse of death that comes because of sin. And so he wants us to understand that his gift in Jesus and of Jesus is, first of all, indispensable, but also this gift is immeasurable. And what he has given in Christ far outweighs the magnitude of what we are in our sin, in being dead and alienated from from God. He doesn't give us what our sins deserve. He gives us far more. And it's amazing. One of the pictures of this that we find in Scripture, and it's everywhere in Scripture. Again, that could be the commentary of the whole of Scripture, but God. In spite of sin, God is merciful. God is gracious. God is overflowing, lavish, and abundant in his compassion, his care, and his kindness. Well, one of the pictures that we see of this being displayed is in a parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. You don't need to turn there now, but it's the parable we often call the parable of the prodigal son, but it really ought to be better called the parable of the extravagant father. Because that's the point that Jesus is emphasizing. And the nature of the story Jesus tells is that uh, this man has two sons and one of them wants his inheritance early. And so the father gives it to him and the son takes his inheritance and he goes as far away from the father as he can. He, he can. He goes to a distant land, and that's certainly descriptive of the way we often are with God our Father and our Creator. We want to be as far away from Him as we can. We want everything that He can give, but we don't want Him. So the son takes it, he spends it all on lavish living and lives it up and just feeds his desires. He's a, he's a hedonist on steroids, and he ultimately comes to the end of himself, and he loses everything. And he ends up feeding pigs and eating what the pigs are eating. But he finally, in God's mercy, comes to his sentences. It comes to his senses. It's a picture of, of, of coming to grips with his sin, coming to grips with his need to repent. And so he determines to return to the Father and to acknowledge his sin, to acknowledge his pride, to acknowledge his selfishness, and to say, Father, if I could even just be a hired hand, I would be happy. But then how does the story go? Well, it tells us in Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 20 and following, that the father apparently has been looking and waiting for the son. And as he sees his son over the distant horizon, the father breaks all protocol of the dignity and honor of what a, of a wealthy man in that day would have demonstrated. He pulls up his robe and he runs to meet the son. And he embraces him. And he hugs him. And he rejoices that this son who was lost is now found again. And he throws a feast. And that's a picture of God's extravagant grace. And again, the point that Jesus is emphasizing in that whole story is not primarily about the Son. It's about the extravagant compassion of the Father who welcomes him back as a son. It says, this son of mine who was lost is now found. And he rejoices. Beloved, God's grace, His mercy, His kindness, His love, His compassion, the riches of His gift in Jesus is immeasurable. Now, it's not that our sin is unimportant. It's not that our sin is insignificant. It's very important. It's very significant. It has a huge impact in terms of our our failing to honor God with the honor that He is due. And it, of course, also impacts other people. 
But God is gracious and God forgives. As I mentioned earlier in the prayer of confession that he says, he who conceals his sin does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. And not just a drop of mercy, but an overflowing river, a tidal wave, a Niagara Falls, if you will, of mercy that just keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming. Paul said in Romans chapter 5, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And that's what he's speaking of here. So God's gift is not only indispensable, it is also immeasurable. There's a third observation for us to see, and this brings us directly into verses 8 and 9. And that is that God's gift in Jesus is unmerited. It is unmerited, which is to say it is unearned. It is an absolute, total gift that we bring nothing to the table except our sin. We bring absolutely nothing. It is unmerited. It is unearned. And so he says in verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And we understand every single one of us had absolutely nothing to do with our physical birth, correct? We had nothing to do with it. We're just all of a sudden here. (laughs) That's God's doing ultimately. But even more spiritually, we do nothing to earn our salvation, to merit our salvation, to bring about our salvation. Listen, if salvation, deliverance from sin, deliverance from spiritual death, if any of it depended on us, even in the smallest little smidgen of a thing, then we're doomed and we're damned because we're sinful. We're spiritually dead. That's the point. I mentioned the other night, we're not just bad people who need to be made good. We are dead people who need to be made alive. And only God can bring that about. And he does it not because of anything in us, but because of everything in him. It's not a result of works. As one person has said, we're saved by God's mercy, not by our merit. We are saved by Christ's dying and not by our doing. Now, to be saved means that we're reconciled to God. It means we're forgiven of our sins. It means that we're justified in Christ, which means to be declared righteous. In ourselves, in our sin, we are unrighteous. We fall short of God's righteousness. But Christ lived a perfectly righteous life in complete obedience to God's commandments and in total submission to his will. And he died a death to pay the penalty for those of us who have not done that and those who, by God's grace, are looking to him. And that's what's accomplished in salvation. We're not only forgiven of the penalty of our sin completely, fully, totally, but we also are declared righteous in the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness is imputed to us. It's credited to our account. And so that's what it means to be justified. It means to be declared righteous. And all of that is bound up in this wonderful reality of salvation. I like what one author has said, and this is a woman author, and she's writing to women, and so you'll get that, but you can see how this applies to everyone, and there's a lot of other ways that we could describe this. 
Uh, but listen to what she says, and you get the point of this. She says, so what's the, ta-, and I'm quoting now, so what's the takeaway? She says, recycle if you like, but recycling doesn't justify you. Eat organic foods and give birth to eight babies in your bathtub if you like, but that doesn't justify you. Buy whole grains and, and, and have natural births, but it doesn't justify you. She says, walk for whatever cause you like. Be green, be pink, or dress in camo. God isn't impressed. None of these things justify you. She goes on, homeschool or don't homeschool, be married or don't be married, live in the city, live on the prairie, love highbrow classical music, groove to rap music, or bow humbly before and can it be, none of it justifies you. None of it is enough to make you righteous before the Lord. She says, but don't worry, the position of justifier has been filled. His name is Jesus, end quote, and amen. And friends, there is no work that we can bring to God to justify ourselves. We can't go to church enough. We can't give money enough. We can't do enough good deeds. We can't volunteer enough. It's all about what God has done for us. This gift is fully, totally, completely unmerited. So we see it as a gift that is indispensable, it is immeasurable, and it is unmerited. And then the final observation for us to see in our text is number four, that God's gift in Jesus is re-creational. Re-creational. I didn't want to just say recreational because it might miss the point. But hopefully you get the point. His work, his gift in Jesus is re-creational. And this is what we see in verse 10. Because Paul says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And Paul is drawing upon the language of creation. Think back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and the beautiful, staggering, wonderful uh, revelation God's given of all that He did in creating the heavens and the earth in six days and then ceasing from His work on the seventh day. And as we read of that account, one of the realities we hear again and again is, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then at the very end of all of His creation, It says it is that God saw all that he had created and it was very good. So Paul's drawing on that language of God's workmanship in creation to speak of his workmanship in the new creation of those that he is saving in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's recreating us, if you will. He's making us new for any that he brings to faith in himself. And we understand then, and this is an amazing truth with what Paul says here in verses 8 and 9, he makes it clear that we're not saved on the basis of good works at all, but we are saved for good works because we're created in Christ Jesus. As Paul would also say in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17, that, that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You see, God's not just simply reforming us, just making a few tweaks here and there in our lives, in our character. No, to be in Christ is to become a brand new person. Now, yes, we're, we're, we're the same person in one sense, but he changes us from the inside out so that we become different, 
We're born of Him. That's what it means to be born again. We're born of Him. He's given us new birth. He's made us a life in Christ. And God's gift in Jesus is recreational. One commentator speaks of this and says it this way, quote, Creation was grand. New creation is grander. To bring a world out of nothing was great. To restore a world, to recreate a world from chaos is greater. At the first creation, God saw all that he had made and it was good. At the new creation, he experiences even a deeper emotion and joy, end quote. And to be in Christ and to share in this new creation and to share in it not just individually but with one another who are in Christ. Even as we live that out and grow in that in the context of a local church rejoicing in our union with other believers everywhere. We see what God is doing and we anticipate the day when Jesus is going to return and bring full and final judgment upon all of those who hate him and who have resisted him. And ultimately then ushers in the new heavens and the new earth in which there will be no unrighteousness, no sin. But to be in Christ is to be a new creation and to be made for Him. And so, beloved, these are just a few observations regarding the nature of God's gift in Jesus Christ and of Jesus Christ. Why we should savor both the gift and the giver. Because the gift is indispensable. It is immeasurable. It is, it is um, infinite. What was my third point here? i got to just remember this here. What was that third point? Oh, yes, unmerited. Yes, there it is. It is indispensable. It is immeasurable. It is unmerited. And it is recreational. Well, how does a person respond if they've received this gift? What does it look like in a person's life? What's the, what's the fruit of this? What's the product that God is producing in the lives of those who have received this gift? And I'll just mention two very quick but clearly identifiable realities. Number one, it produces a humble posture. If you've received this gift, it produces in you a humble posture. Now, we battle that because we still have indwelling sin, but there's a humble posture. That's what Paul's getting at when he says at the end of verse 9, in view of this gift, so that no one may boast. The more we understand what it meant to be dead in sin, what it meant to be lost, and the more we grow in our understanding of the immeasurable riches of God's gift in Jesus and the fact that it's unmerited, the more humble we should become. The more broken in that sense to recognize I am absolutely nothing but a victim, as it were, of God's grace. I am one to whom he has been gracious. It should produce a humble posture. And then second of all, very much related to that, it produces a transformed life. A transformed life. Notice what he says there in verse 10, in light of uh, being his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. It's very interesting. How does verse 1 of chapter 2 begin? It talks about how we walked in our trespasses and sins. He's talking about our pattern of life, how we walk. Well, now he says at the end of verse 10, if we are in Christ, if we've become um, recipients of his gift in Christ, we now walk in the good works that he's called us to walk in. Our lives are transformed. 
And he's going to spend the rest of the letter, especially chapters 4, 5, and 6, talking about what that transformed life is to look like in our affections, in our desires, in our words, in our relationships, in our ambitions, everything. He talks about it all. And for someone who's been born of God, received his gift in Christ, there's a humble posture that leads to a deepening, evidently transformed life. And again, it's a lifelong process of growing in these things and the security and the assurance of of all that God has given us in himself in Christ. But that's what it produces, a humble posture and a transformed life. Well, all of this, of course, is very personal. It's not private in the sense that God is not just saving individuals. He's saving a whole people. He's, he's gathering his flock. He's, he's redeeming his people. But it's yet very personal for every single one of us. And it leads us to the simple question, have you received Jesus? Have you received God's gift in Jesus Christ? We understand this again very, very easily, very experientially. When somebody gives you a gift, the gift means nothing unless you receive it open it, and enjoy it. And the same is true, friends, with regard to God's gift of life in Jesus Christ. Have you received him? Have you humbled yourself to say, I need this gift. I have no hope. I have no life. I have no anything apart from knowing, trusting, receiving the fullness of God's gift in Jesus Christ. Beloved, if anything else we should be doing this season and and every day, every moment of our lives, it's to be savoring and cherishing and treasuring not only the gift that God has given, but the giver himself, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And may you know the fullness of joy, the fullness of hope, the fullness of peace in living in the fullness of all that God offers and gives in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. It's overwhelming. None of us deserve to even breathe, and yet you've been pleased to give us physical life, and yet even more to to know that you knew our condition. You know our condition uh, often even, well, we know ultimately way better than we know it ourselves. We so easily deceive ourselves to think that we're something that we're not. But you know the truth. And even in knowing the truth, you demonstrate your love by giving Jesus for us. Father, again, we we know we easily take this for granted. We know we easily um, offend your grace and your mercy And yet you relentlessly pursue us because you want us to know the the joy and the fullness of walking in your holy, righteous love in Jesus. Lord, may your purposes for all of us who are within the hearing of your word now be realized. May each one know uh, such joy, such peace, such hope in trusting, knowing, and walking with you and all that you've given in Christ. And may we live to your glory that you might be magnified through us so that more would come to know this life as well. Thank you so much for the time you've given us to share together, even this morning, in the name of Christ. Amen and amen. Well, amen. We're going to sing a closing song and then we'll be dismissed.